Section nine of Yiddish Tales. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Yiddish Tales translated by Helena Frank and read by Adrian Pretzelis. Section nine. A gloomy wedding by Mordechai Spector. They handed Gittel a letter that had come by post. She put on her spectacles, sat down by the window, and began to read. She read, and her face began to shine, and the wrinkled skin took on a little colour. It was plain that what she read delighted her beyond measure. She devoured the words, caught her breath, and wept aloud in the fullness of her joy. At last, at last, blessed be his dear name, who I am not worthy to mention. I do not know, Gottinu, how to thank you for the mercy thou hast shown me. Bela, where is Bela? Where is Yossel? Children, come, make haste and wish me joy. A great joy has befallen us. Send for Avremla. Tell him to come with Zlatka and all the children. Thus Gittel, while she read the letter, never ceased calling every one into the room never ceased reading and calling, calling and reading, and devouring the words as she read. Every soul who happened to be at home came running. Good luck to you, good luck to all of us. Moishala has become engaged in Warsaw, and invites us all to the wedding, Gittel explained. There, read the letter. Reboina Shaloilam, may it be in a propitious hour, may we all have comfort in one another, may we hear nothing but good news of one another and of all Israel. Read it, read it, children. He writes that he has a very beautiful bride, well favoured, with a large dowry. Reboina Shaloilam, I am not worthy of the mercy thou hast shown me repeated Gittel over and over, as she paced the room with uplifted hands, while her daughter, Bela, took up the letter in her turn. The children and everyone in the house, including the maid from the kitchen with rolled-up sleeves and wet hands, encircled Bela as she read aloud. "'Read louder, Belechka, so that I can hear, so that we can all hear,' begged Gittel and there were tears of happiness in her eyes. The children jumped for joy to see Grandmother so happy. The word wedding, which Bela read out of the letter, contained a promise of all delightful things—musicians, pancakes, new frocks and suits—and they could not keep themselves from dancing. The maid, too, was heartily pleased. She kept singing out, Oy, what a bride, beautiful as gold, and did not know what to be doing next. Should she go and finish cooking the dinner, or should she pull down her sleeves and make holiday? The hiss of a pot boiling over in the kitchen interrupted the letter-reading, and she was requested to go and attend to it forthwith. The bride sends us a separate greeting. Long life to her, may she live when my bones are dust. Let us go to the provisor, he shall read it. It is written in French." The provisor, 
the apothecary's foreman, who lived in the same house, said the bride's letter was not written in French but in Polish, that she called Gittel her second mother, that she loved her son Moses as her life, that he was her world, that she held herself to be the most fortunate of girls since God had given her Moses, that Gittel, once more, was her second mother, and that she felt like a dutiful daughter towards her, and hoped that Gittel would love her as her own child. The bride declared further that she kissed her new sister Bela a thousand times, together with Zlatka and their husbands and children, and she signed herself, Your forever devoted and loving daughter, Regina. An hour later all Gittel's children were assembled round her. Her eldest son, Avremel, with his wife, Zlatka, and her little ones, Bela's husband, and her son-in-law, Yossel, all read the letter with eager curiosity. Brandy and spice-cakes were placed on the table. Wine was sent for. They drank healths, wished each other joy, and began to talk of going to the wedding. Gittel, very tired with what she had gone through this day, went to lie down for a while to rest her head, which was all in a whirl, but the others remained sitting at the table, and never stopped talking of Moisha. "'I can imagine the sort of engagement Moisha has made, begging his pardon,' remarked the daughter-in-law, and wiped her pale lips. "'I should think so. A man who's been a bachelor up to thirty. It's easy to fancy the sort of bride and the sort of family she has, if they accepted Moisha as a suitor," agreed the daughter. "'God helping, this ought to make a man of him,' sighed Moisha's elder brother. "'He's cost us trouble and worry enough.' "'It's your fault,' Yossel told him. "'If I'd been his elder brother, he would have turned out differently. I should have directed him like a father, and taken him well in hand.' You think so, but when God wishes to punish a man through his own child going astray, nothing is of any use. These are not the old times when young people feared a Rebbe and respected their elders. Nowadays the world is topsy-turvy, and no sooner has a boy outgrown his childhood than he does what he pleases, and parents are nowhere. What have I left undone to make something out of him, so that he should be a credit to his family? Then he was left an orphan very early. Perhaps he would have obeyed his father. May he enter a lightsome paradise. For a brother and his mother, he paid them as little attention as last year's snow. And if you said anything to him, he answered rudely. Neither coaxing nor scolding was any good. Now, please God, he'll make a fresh start, and give up his antics before it's too late. His poor mother! She's had enough trouble on his account, as we all know." Bela let fall a tear, and said, "'If our father—may he be our kind advocate—were alive, Moishela would never have made an engagement like this. Who knows what sort of connections they will be? I can see them, begging his pardon, from here. Is he likely to have asked anyone's advice? He always had a will of his own, did what he wanted to do, never asked his mother or his sister or his brother beforehand. 
Now he's a bridegroom at thirty, if he's a day, and we are all after the wedding, are we really? And we shall soon all be running to see the fine sight such as never was seen before. We are no such fools. He thinks himself the clever one now, so he wants us to be at the wedding, only says it out of politeness. We must go all the same, said Avremel. Go and welcome if you want, you won't catch me there, answered his sister. There was a deal more discussion and disputing about not going to the wedding and only congratulating by telegram for good manners' sake. Since he had asked no one's advice and engaged himself without them, let him get married without them too. Gittel, up in her bedroom, could not so soon compose herself after the events of the day. What she had experienced was no trifle. Moishela, engaged to be married! She had been through so much on his account in the course of her life. She had loved him, her youngest-born, so dearly. He was such a beautiful child that the light of his countenance dazzled you, and bright as the day, so that people opened ears and mouth to hear him talk, and God and men alike envied her the possession of such a boy. I counted on making a match for him as I did with the Vremnel before him. He was offered the best connections with the families of the greatest rabbis, but no, no, he wanted to go on studying. Study here, study there, said I. Sixteen years old and a bachelor. If you want to study, can't you study at your father-in-law's, eating cost? There are books in plenty, thank heaven, of your father's. No, he wanted to go and study elsewhere, asked nobody's advice, and made off for two months. I never had a line. I nearly went out of my mind. Then, suddenly, there came a letter, begging my pardon for not having said good-bye, and would I forgive him and send him some money, because he had nothing to eat. It tore my heart to think of my Moishela, who used to make me happy whenever he enjoyed a meal, should hunger. I sent him some money. I went on sending him money for three years. After that he stopped asking for it. I begged him to come home. He made no reply. I don't wish to quarrel with a Vemeral, my sister and her husband, he wrote later. We cannot live together in peace. Why? I don't know. Then, for a time, he left off writing altogether, and the messages we got for him sounded very sad. Now he was in Kiev, now in Odessa, now in Charkov, and they told us he was living like any Gentile, had not the look of a Jew at all. Some said he was living with a Gentile woman, a countess, and would never marry in his life. Five years ago he had suddenly appeared at home, to see his mother, as he said. Gittel did not recognize him. He was so changed. The rest found him quite the stranger. 
He had a goyish, shaven face with a twisted moustache, and was got up like a rich Gentile with a purse full of banknotes. His family were ashamed to walk abroad with him. Gittel never ceased weeping and imploring him to give up the countess, remain a Jew, stay with his mother, and she, with God's help, would make an excellent match for him, if he would only alter his appearance and ways just a little. Moishele solemnly assured his mother that he was a Jew, that there was no countess, but that he wouldn't remain home for a million roubles. First, because he had business elsewhere, and secondly he had no fancy for his native town, there was nothing there for him to do, and to dispute with his brother and sister about religious piety was not worth his while. So Moishele departed, and Gittel wept, wondering why he was different from the other children, seeing that they all had the same mother, and she had lived and suffered for all alike. Why would he not stay with her at home? What would he have wanted for there? God be praised not to sin with her tongue, thanks to God first, and then to him, a lightsome paradise be his, they were provided for with a house and a few thousand roubles, all that was necessary for their comfort, and a little ready money besides. The house alone, not to sin with her tongue, would bring in enough to make a living. Other people envy us, but it doesn't happen to please him, and he goes wandering about the world, without a wife and without a home. A man twenty and odd years old, and without a home!" The rest of the family were secretly well content to be free of such a poor creature. The further off, the better. The shame is less. A letter from him came very seldom after this, and for the last two years he had dropped out altogether. Nobody was surprised, for everyone was convinced that Moishele would never come to anything. Some told that he was in prison, others knew that he had gone abroad and was being pursued, others that he had hung himself because he was tired of life, and that before his death he had repented of all his sins, only it was too late. His relations heard all these reports, and were careful to keep them from his mother, because they were not sure that the bad news was true. Gittel bore the pain at her heart in silence, weeping at times over her Moishele, who had got into bad ways, and now, suddenly, this precious letter, with its precious news. Her Moishele is about to marry, and invites them to the wedding." Thus Gittel, lying in bed in her own room, recalled everything she had suffered through her undutiful son, only now, now everything was forgotten and forgiven, and her mother's heart was full of love for her Moishele, just as in the days when he toddled about at her apron and pleased his mother and every one else. All her thoughts were now taken up with getting ready to attend the wedding. The time was so short, there were only three weeks left. When her other children were married, 
Gittel began her preparations three months ahead, and now there were only three weeks. Next day she took out her watered silk dress with the green satin flowers and hung it out to air, examined it lest there should be a hook missing. After that she polished her long earrings with chalk, her pearls, her rings, and all her other ornaments, and bought a new yellow silk kerchief for her head, with a large flowery pattern in a lighter shade. A week before the journey to Warsaw they baked spice-cakes, pancakes, and almond-rolls to take with her, from the bridegroom's side, and ordered a shaitel, a wig, for the bride. When her eldest son was married, Gittel had also given the bride silver candlesticks for Friday evenings, and presented her with a shaitel for the bedecken, the veiling ceremony. And before she left, Gittel went to her husband's grave, and asked him to be present at the wedding, as a good advocate for the newly married pair. Gittel started for Warsaw in grand style, and cheerful and happy as befits a mother going to the wedding of her favourite son. All those who accompanied her to the station declared that she looked younger and prettier by twenty years, and made a beautiful bridegroom's mother. Besides wedding presents for the bride, Gittel took with her her money for wedding expenses, so that she might play her part with becoming lavishness, and people should not think her moisture came, bless and preserve us, of a low-born family, to show that he was none so forlorn, but that he had, God be praised, and may it be for a hundred and twenty years to come, a mother and a sister and brothers, and came of a well-to-do family. She would show them that she could be as fine a bridegroom's mother as any one, even, thank God, in Warsaw. Moishela was her last child, and she grudged him nothing. Were he alive, may he be a good intercessor, he would certainly have graced the wedding better, and spent more money. But she would spare nothing to make a good figure on the occasion. She would treat every connection of the bride to a special dance-tune, give the musicians a whole five-rouble piece for their performance of the vivat, and two dryalech for the kosher tance, besides something for the rav the chazan, the cantor, and the beadle, and arms for the poor. What should she say for? She has no more children to marry off. Blessed be his dear name, who granted her life to see her Moishilla's wedding. Thus happily did Gittel start for Warsaw. One carriage after another drove up to the wedding reception room in Deluga Street, Warsaw. Ladies and their daughters, all in evening dress and smartly attired gentlemen, alighted and went in. The room was full. The band played. Ladies and gentlemen were dancing, and those who were not talked of the bride and bridegroom, and said how fortunate they considered Regina to have secured such a presentable young man, lively, educated, and intelligent, with quite a fortune which he had made himself and a good business. Ten thousand roubles dowry with the perfection of a husband was a rare thing nowadays when a poor professional man, a little doctor without practice, asked fifteen thousand. 
It was true, they said, that Regina was a pretty girl, and a credit to her parents, but how many pretty bright girls had more money than Regina, and sat waiting? It was above all the mothers of the young ladies present who talked low in this way among themselves. The bride sat on a chair at the end of the room, ladies and young girls on either side of her. Gittel, the bridegroom's mother, in her watered silk dress, with the large green satin flowers, was seated between two ladies with dresses cut so low that Gittel could not bear to look at them. Women with husbands and children daring to show themselves like that at a wedding! Then she could not endure the odour of their bare skin, the powder, pomade and perfumes with which they were smeared, sprinkled and wetted, even to their hair. All these strange smells tickled Gittel's nose, and went to her head like a fume. She sat between the two ladies, feeling cramped and shut in, unable to stir, and would gladly have gone away. Only whither? Where should she, the bridegroom's mother, be sitting? if not near the bride at the upper end of the room. But all the ladies sitting there were half-naked. Should she sit near the door? That would never do. And Gittel remained sitting in great embarrassment between the two women, and looked on at the reception, and saw nothing but a room full of décolleté ladies and girls. Gittel felt more and more uncomfortable. It made her quite faint to look at them. "'One can get over the girls, young things, because a girl has to please, although no Jewish daughter ought to show herself to every one like that. But what are you to do with present-day children, especially in a dissolute city like Warsaw? But young women and women who have husbands and children and no need, thank God, to please anyone. How are they not ashamed before God and other people and their own children to come to a wedding half-naked, like loose girls in a public house, Jewish daughters who ought not to be seen uncovered by the four walls of their room, to come like that to a wedding, to a Jewish wedding? Tuh, tuh! I'd like to spit at this new-fangled world. May God not punish me for these words. It is enough to make one faint to see such a display among Jews." After the ceremony under the chuppah, which was erected in the centre of the room, the company sat down to the table, and Gittel was again seated at the top, between the two women before mentioned, whose perfumes went to her head. She felt so queer and so ill at ease that she could not partake of the dinner. Her mouth seemed locked, and the tears came in her eyes. When they rose from table, Gittel sought out a place removed from the upper end, and sat down in a window. But presently the bride's mother, also in décolleté, caught sight of her, and went and took her by the hand. "'Why are you sitting here, Mechanesta, mother-in-law? Why are you not at the top? I wanted to rest myself a little." "'Oh, no, no, come and sit here,' said the lady, led her away by force, 
and seated her between the two ladies with the perfumes. Long, long did she sit, feeling more and more sick and dizzy. If only she could have poured out her heart to some person, if she could have exchanged a single word with anybody during the whole evening, it would have been a relief. But there was no one to speak to. The music played, there was dancing, but Gittel could see nothing. She felt an oppression at her heart, and became covered with perspiration. Her head grew heavy, and she fell from her chair. "'The bridegroom's mother has fainted!' was the outcry throughout the room. "'Water! Water!' They fetched water, discovered a doctor among the guests, and he led Gittel into another room, and soon brought her round. The bride, the bridegroom, the bride's mother, and two ladies ran in. "'What can have caused it? Lie down! How do you feel now? Perhaps you would like a sip of lemonade?' they all asked. "'Thank you. I want nothing. I feel better already. Leave me alone for a while. I shall soon recover myself and be all right.' So Gittel was left alone, and she breathed more easily. Her head stopped aching. She felt like one let out of prison. Only there was a pain at her heart. The tears which had choked her all day now began to flow, and she wept abundantly. The music never ceased playing. She heard the sound of the dancers' feet and the directions of the master of ceremonies. The floor shook, Gittel wept, and tried with all her might to keep from sobbing, so that people should not hear and come in and disturb her. She had not wept so since the death of her husband, and this was the wedding of her favourite son. By degrees she ceased to weep altogether, dried her eyes, and sat quietly talking to herself of the many things that passed through her head. Better that he, may he enter a lightsome paradise, should have died than live to see what I have seen, and the dear delight which I have had at the wedding of my youngest child. Better that I myself should not have lived to see his marriage canopy, chuppah indeed, for sticks stuck up in the middle of the room to make fun with, for people to play at being married, like monkeys. Then a table, no shevabrachos, no seven blessings, not a Jewish word, not a Jewish face, no minion to be seen, only shaven Gentiles upon Gentiles, a room full of naked women and girls that make you sick to look at them. My Shiloh had better have married a poor orphan. I shouldn't have been half so ashamed or half so unhappy. Gittel called to mind the sort of a bridegroom's mother she had been at the marriage of her eldest son, and the satisfaction she had felt. Four hundred women had accompanied her to the shul when Avremela was called to the reading of the law as a bridegroom, and they had scattered nuts almonds and raisins down upon him as he walked. Then the party before the wedding, and the ceremony of the chuppah, and the procession with the bride and bridegroom to the shul, the merry homecoming, the golden ayoich, the golden soup, 
The bridegroom brought at supper-time to the sound of the music, the cantor and his choir who sang while they sat at table, the chevrebrachos, the vivat played for each one separately, the kosher dance, the dance round the bridegroom. And the whole time it had been gittel here and gittel there. Good luck to you, Gittel. May you be happy in the young couple and in all your other children, and live to dance at the wedding of your youngest. It was a delight, and no mistake. Where is Gittel? she hears them cry. The uncle, the aunt, a cousin who paid for a dance for the Mechuta Nesta on the bridegroom's side. Play, musicians, all. The company make way for her, and she dances with the uncle the aunt and the cousin, and all the rest clap their hands. She is tired with dancing, but still they call Gittel. An old friend sings a merry song in her honour. Play, musicians all! And Gittel dances on. The company clap their hands, and wish her all that is good, and she is penetrated with genuine happiness and the joy of the occasion. Then, when the guests begin to depart, and the mothers of the bridegroom and the bride whisper together about the forthcoming bedecken, the veiling ceremony, she sees the bride in her wig, already a wife, her daughter-in-law, her jam pancakes and mandelboit almond rolls are praised by all, and what cakes are left over from the bedecken are either snatched one by one or else they are seized wholesale by the young people standing round the table, so that she should not see, and they laugh and tease her. That is the way to become a mother-in-law. And here, of course, the whole of the pancakes and sweet-cakes and almond-rolls which she brought have never so much as been unpacked, and are to be thrown away or taken home again, as you please. A shame. No one came to her for cakes. The wig, too, may be thrown away, or carried back. Moishela told her it was not required. It wouldn't quite do. The bride accepted the silver candlesticks with embarrassment, as though Gittel had done something to make her feel awkward and some girls who were standing by smiled. Regina has been given candlesticks for the candle-blessing on Fridays. <laughs> the bridal couple with the girl's parents came in to ask how she felt, and interrupted the current of her thoughts. "'We shall drive home now. People are leaving,' they said. "'The wedding is over,' they told her. "'Everything in life comes to a speedy end.' Gittel remembered that when Nevremel was married, the festivities had lasted a whole week, till over the second cheerful Sabbath, when the bride, the new daughter-in-law, was led to the shul. The day after the wedding Gittel drove home, sad, broken in spirit, as people return from the cemetery where they have buried a child, where they have laid a fragment of their own heart of their own life under the earth. Driving home in the carriage she consoled herself with this at least, 
A good thing that Baila and Zlatka of Remel and Yossel were not here. The shame will be less. There will be less talk. Nobody will know what I am suffering. Gittel arrived, the picture of gloom. When she left for the wedding, she had looked suddenly twenty years younger, and now she looked twenty years older than before. End of section nine. A gloomy wedding by Mordechai Spector.